often when I describe pain in this way, people go, oh yeah, pain is, you know, created by the mind. And I want to be very clear that pain is not in your head and it's not something that your mind has just created. It's a very, very real output to change your behavior. So it could be that your wrists need attention. It could be that we need to get you breathing more properly. It's important that people look at the individual's history. And based on that history, we then decide where our focus will go to help the person reduce their threat levels. Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to the Glow Podcast. In this episode, I turn the mic over to Mark Laws. Mark is a member of our GLOW faculty, and he has a passion for mind, body, soul, wisdom he acquired through his journey as a former professional soccer player and sports therapist. He's fascinated with how yoga can offer methods to still body, mind, restlessness. Mark's guest today is Celeste Pereira, co-author with Adele Bridges of Too Flexible to Feel Good, a book for double-jointed or overly flexible people who struggle with injuries in their yoga practice. Celeste is also the host of the Love at First Science podcast. Celeste describes herself as a geek who loves anatomy, neuroscience, and biomechanics. She has a Bachelor of Science in Physiotherapy despite dropping out of school at age 16. Mark will give you Celeste's detailed bio as he introduces her, so I won't repeat it here. In previous episodes of our podcast, we've explored how the brain perceives and creates the world we experience, and Celeste brings a new chapter to those conversations. She and Mark discuss nociceptors, the sensory neurons that respond to potentially damaging stimuli by sending possible threat signals to the spinal cord and brain. The brain creates the sensation of pain to call attention to the part of the body that might be at risk. During her conversation with Mark, Celeste offers a few simple visual exercises that may help you go a little deeper into backbends and perhaps reconfigure your perception of pain. The exercises Celeste shares may lead you to think differently about how focus and attention practices can improve your concentration. But before we get to this episode, I want to briefly mention that we are going to launch a new kind of episode on the Glow Podcast. Every Wednesday for the next few months, we will present a lecture from Professor Christopher Chapel. Dr. Chapel will share his knowledge about the history of yoga and also the Yoga Sutras. That's coming soon, and we'll let you know when it launches on our social media. And now, I hope you enjoy this conversation between Mark Laws and Celeste Pereira. Celeste, how are you doing? I haven't even had a chance to say hello to you yet. Yeah, I'm doing great, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure. How are you doing? I'm incredible. Um, it's late night here in Bali, and um, just happy to connect with you all the way. And uh, you're in London now? Yeah, I'm in London, and thank you for logging on so late. Um, I know you have a family and stuff, so I really appreciate it. Yeah, this is this is like my um, my time when everybody goes to bed. I'm usually up a little bit later, and I'm just like having my space and doing my thing and taking my time. So, yes, awesome. yeah, important to give yourself that space. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I want to introduce you uh, to everybody. Um, Celeste came up for me. Um, when I was asked if I'd like to be interviewed or interview somebody on the Glow podcast here. And immediately you just popped in my head and I was like, oh, Celeste, I haven't, I haven't spoken to her in a while. And um, the reason why you came up is I love the way 
or what you're up to these days. Like you take these different disciplines and you put them together and this amazing um, concoction comes out using your physiotherapy background, your scientific questions, your yoga extraordinaire, you're a movement expert. And now you're really diving deep into neuroscience as well. Can you can you tell us a little bit about who you are? Like, where did you come from? Um, where did you start your journey when you came onto this planet? I actually was born in South Africa. And yeah, it was a fantastic childhood. I can't fault it, really. I had two really loving, great parents. I had a brother who was three years older than me, who did all the regular big brother things, like teased me and tickled me. But oh, man, when I look back, that guy had my back. And uh, those uh, kind of strong pillars gave me a lot of confidence as a person. And so for those of you who don't know me, I'm very, very short uh, female, like a little five foot one powerhouse. They call me pocket rocket Um, (laughs) and uh, probably a bit too loud for most people's liking. Um, But I think the confidence to, you know, speak up and really challenge the world around me which we'll talk about, um, really came from that kind of loving, supportive background. But of course, you know, South Africa had its troubles. My dad had um, really severe health issues. And we decided when my brother turned 18 to leave South Africa and we decided to move to England. And that was actually a really challenging time for us and our family. Um, It was like leaving one culture and shifting to another, definitely... Yeah, it was, it was a lot, but like all big challenges, they teach you so much and you grow as a person more than you could ever imagine. And again, I'm just so grateful that I had those opportunities. You and I met, (laughs) Um, and yeah, we're here in London. Life has been very good to me for the last 22 years in London. Um, but it's been a lot of hard work in the background as well. Yeah, so I met Celeste in London, and um, this is over probably over eight years ago, right? Yeah, you were working at Lululemon, and I was a Lululemon ambassador. And one of the great things about that company is how it connected people. And mm. yeah, meeting you was uh, uh, just such an amazing eye opener to me um, because I'm such a high energy, hyper quick, fast kind of always on the go person meeting someone like you who was so magnetic and so uh, it's like people were so drawn to you but you had the slow ease and yeah it was a real lesson you coming into my life and uh, I opened your whatsapp to send you a message the other day and the little caption that you have underneath your name said hurry (laughs) slowly and I was like oh this guy never stops showing me the way (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. Yeah, I, I remember when when I was first getting to know you, and I went to um, Bear. She's a uh, movement extraordinaire as well, in, in the background of Capoeira. And you were in the class, and I was just getting to know you, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, look at this woman move!" Like, not just in yoga, but the control that you have to have in Capoeira. I was just like amazed. For those that don't know what a capoeira is, it's a Brazilian martial art. Um, it's very acrobatic and it has traditional instruments that are played in the background as you move and play and um, with each other through these uh, martial art movements. And then to sit down and talk with you, I think months later, I was just like, I was blown away with the way you approach um, 
just everything in life, just the curiosity and the never ending questions to get to, you know, to the source of things. And, um, yeah, it really moved me. And now we're here eight years later and having a conversation. A lot has changed. You got married. Yep. You are a dad. I am a dad. Yes. A two year old miracle. You live in Bali now. <laughs> yep. The, uh, the dreams and the undreamed definitely unraveled. It's, uh, it's extraordinary, huh? It really That's is. That's pretty cool. That's uh, pretty cool. <laughs> so, all right. So you, you moved to London and then what happened as you, you came into London and you started to, you, you went to school. When did you notice that you loved movement so much and became a physiotherapist and even a yoga teacher? Like how did that all happen? So actually, I mean, I was obsessed with movement since very, very small. I have memories of me skipping like a female possessed around the living room as a little child with like ribbons and like waving the ribbons around to make all these cool shapes in the air. Um, and I begged my mom and dad to let me do ice skating, but there was no ice skating rink in a small town in South Africa. Um, so we settled upon dancing. So I did some dance as a child. Um, Moving to London, my goal was to move into the performance uh, sphere, but the competition, the level was very high compared to my very basic training. And the other issue that I faced was I'm dyslexic and I find picking up information quickly very challenging. And one of the challenges is when you're in a dance setting, particularly around the realm of auditions, is you have to pick up a lot of information very quickly, and then you have to regurgitate it at a very high level. And um, I wasn't cutting the mustard, if I'm really honest. Um, but that was a positive because that kind of got me thinking laterally and was like, okay, I love movement and I love dance. You know, where could this take me? And I ended up um, deciding to go into the realm of physiotherapy. But the challenge was I hadn't finished school. So then, uh, thankfully, moving to England was actually such a godsend because in England, they've got these programs to help people who hadn't finished school. And they basically called an access to science. So you know what you want to study. They give you the uh, finished school equivalent in the UK, it's called an A-level. And with that, you can apply to university. And, you know, I ended up getting into one of the top universities in London and, um, it was probably the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life, being a non-academic really? person, to suddenly be thrust into the world of science at such a high level, to struggle reading as much as I did and then have to read clinical papers. It, it was um, very difficult. But again, we, we're glad that for all those challenges because like you read in the bio, one of the things that I can do now is I can actually really teach complex subjects to uh, to people who have the same struggles as me and we can all be along the ride together having a laugh and people playing more and as you play and you enjoy yourself more you find learning so much easier and that's something I pride myself on mm, no doubt about that you definitely have this this uh bubbly air and make things so enjoyable I've done some of your classes in the past and I think even a retreat and it's such a pleasure to, to do your classes where I find fun and play bring out the best in us and we access this energy that um, 
this allows us to do things we never thought we can do before. And you just ha- happen to hold that space because of your, your natural um, inclination to just be so happy and joyful and um, just easy to approach. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, absolutely, Ben. You are amazing. From physiotherapy, how did you get into yoga? I graduated from dance school and I, I went um, to traveling. I decided to do some traveling. And as I was traveling, um, one of the things I thought would be really cool was just to do a teacher training. And took my teacher training, ended up... Um, I'm just trying to get the timeline of everything that's happened in my life straight. But basically, um, no, this is what happened. I apologize. I went traveling. And when I came back, I realized that oh, I wasn't going to be able to dance. And that was like, a, oh, man, like such a blow. Um, and my mom walked into the room one day and she was like, you know, there's this course happening down the road that can teach you how to teach aerobics. Why don't you do that? So it's not dancing, but it's aerobics. And I was like, brilliant. Let's bring it on. And I was in the course and they started talking about lifting weights. And I was like, I don't want to lift weights. I want to teach aerobics. But I thought, listen, you're in the course. You've paid the money. Let's finish it. And off the back of that, I ended up getting a job working in a gym. And it's there that I found yoga. And it was like, okay, again, it wasn't totally my passion. It wasn't what I thought I would end up doing. But I ended up discovering yoga and I loved it. And I also met the physiotherapist who said to me, Celeste, you know what? You have got so much in you. Don't get stuck in a gym. Why don't you love the human body? You've really got a lot about you. Why don't you try and get into university? She was actually the nudge. We're still friends mm. to this day. And she's a mom now as well. It's just amazing. Um, and so I did the access to science. I ended up going to university. And this is the other crazy part of the story. I was, um, as I graduated, I thought I'm going to take my student loan and I'm going to go traveling again. But when I came back, I was penniless and there was a bottleneck with graduates like me who were coming out of uni and there were all these overseas physiotherapists coming into England and I couldn't for the life of me get a job. And again, the universe pushed me and said, you're going to have to earn money somehow. And I thought, I'll start teaching yoga just for the time being. It's not a long-term plan. It's just for now. But in the end, that ended up being what I did. I ended up teaching yoga. And as I taught more and more and my confidence grew and I started using a lot of my physiotherapy uh, with my clients, um, to cut a long story short, I ended up combining physiotherapy and yoga. And I started realizing that there's a few things in the yoga practice which we can maybe update. And there's a few things in physiotherapy which yoga can really support. And so, yeah, that's the timeline and I, you know it's so funny I get the two stories sometimes mixed in my dyslexic brain <laughs> mm-hmm. but this is yeah finally it's coming out semi-clearly <laughs> nice thank you for dipping back I love it and I love the I love the to hear your path like even like not only your history but just the, the spiritual path and it kind of allows everybody to realize that you no matter what like you can access it from from anywhere where yours is like the gym and meeting certain people that just aligned and suddenly you're in yoga and you're mixing, you're blending the spiritual path with physiotherapy. Um, almost like the, that word coined multipotentialite, we're just bringing it all together. Um, that, that actually leads me into, so you, you're a student of neuroscience and I, I've noticed that you've posted a few things on your, um, 
Instagram. I was looking at it the other day. Once in a while, your your beautiful face and Adele as well, one of your fun partners. You guys just having the best time making these videos. Um, how are you bringing neuroscience into yoga? Like, what's really lighting you up at the moment? Oh my gosh, Mark! It is so fascinating. <laughs> it, oh, I could talk about this for days. So get ready. But let's keep it on a really simple level and let's keep it along the realms of, let's say you are struggling with your back bends. You know, you're really trying your hardest and no matter how much effort you're putting in to doing all the right stretches and mobility drills, you just can't seem to get comfortable in a back bend. There's some progress, but it's just not landing. Well, what we have to remember is that the whole body is really governed by the control centers of the brain. And how the brain works is it can has different sections dedicated to different pathways. And in particular, if we look at backbends, two major brain regions govern extension preference in the body. One section is the middle of the brainstem. It's called the pons. And the other is a really important part of your brain called the cerebellum. Now, the cerebellum is like a little mini powerhouse. You know, some sources say that 80% of the brain's neurons are jam-packed into this tiny little part of the brain, which is like 10% of its entire mass. And it deals with so many different things. And if we can actually not do a single stretch, not do a single mobility drill or strength drill, we can just target the pons and the cerebellum through seemingly radically unrelated brain drills when we reassess somebody's back bends they often go much deeper so this is just mind-blowing and the same goes for forward folds and twists and that's just getting into range of motion and having access but now we can look at the realm of balance you know i remember as a teacher as a with only my physio background students would who were really dedicated by the way like like coming into class wow three times a week four times a week we're doing high level balance drills in the class where you're on one foot and we're moving the body around in all these weird ways but we are really focused on keeping the head stacked over the shoulders and the eyes fairly fixed now, although we're working on a proprioceptive level there, what we're missing out is the part of the brain that's even more in control on your balance and really has a much bigger impact on balance, which is your vestibular system. And the way that we can target that is actually by moving the head around when you're in a balance. And I think back of that dedicated student and I was like, you know, you're not training hard enough. <laughs> We need to get you stronger. And I am embarrassed to admit it. But the truth is, I, I wasn't thinking laterally enough that actually this guy was training enough and his proprioception was working at a very high level. But the issue that he was faced with was his vestibular system was probably needing a bit of love. And in my infinite lack of wisdom, I, I wasn't giving the correct parts of his brain the attention that it deserved. Mm, that's amazing. So the, these... Pons exercises, like that would be one where you're, you're moving the head in a balance pose. What other ones do you have? So moving the head around would be vestibular. Pons mm -hmm. would be brainstem. So we're looking at something like the cranial mm -hmm. nerves, which is going to be stuff like the way you hum or swallow, or the way you move your eyes. Uh, let's do a pons 
example together right now. Your listeners, if it's not too awkward, you can join me. I want you to assess your standing extension. So it's on two feet, try and do a little back bend. If you're sitting in a chair, stay where you are, do the same thing, just try and do a back bend. Do like five little baby back bends and just feel where do you hit a stop? Where you're like, that's about as much as I can give comfortably in the shape I'm in right now. And then I want us to do 20 seconds, take your eyes outside a window or to something fairly far away and just stare at that object for 20 seconds. So I'm looking at a tree right now outside my window and we're kind of coming into the last 10 seconds. And what we're doing is actually targeting the mid, the middle section of the brainstem called the pons. It deals with something called divergence, the eyes going away from each other and that is looking at something in the distance. So now let's reassess our back bend. Any difference for you there, Mark? Hmm, I would say so. Yeah, so it's a simple hack, but can you see how moving your eyes is seemingly unrelated, but actually has a really profound impact on the way a body can then move into a position? So we discussed vestibular, we discussed brainstem, we discussed the cerebellum. Uh, the cerebellum deals with accuracy, balance, and coordination. So there's different things, again, um, that we can do to light that part of your brain up. But I just wanted to be clear about the distinction between the three. Yeah, and I appreciate that. Um, when, as you were saying that, as you're looking in the distance, it was making me think of drishti. How does that relate to, to the power of drishti? Yeah, I think that drishti obviously was always the way I was taught related to a sense of focus. Um, I don't know if drishti was often taught as a modality to increase range of motion or control, but I do believe in my heart that this does open up a massive opportunity to merge this ancient practice of yoga and this current evidence that we're starting to explore within the realms of neuroscience. That's awesome. And then, you know, speaking on neuroscience, you also talk about um, pain and how pain works in the brain compared to what we think that pain is all about, especially when we are practicing in our yoga or just in everyday life. Can you unravel that a little bit for us and what pain actually is? So that's a really big topic, um, but in a nutshell, <laughs> <laughs> we often used to think, for example, I'll give the example of a plank pose. You know, you're a yoga teacher or maybe you're a practitioner. You're getting into your plank pose and your wrists start to hurt. How we've always been conditioned and rightly so, it seems to make logical sense that if you're doing something and a specific part of your body is hurting, the pain means that there is a problem at that joint. And so we should give attention to that joint. But as we start to look deeper into the realms of neuroscience, what we start realizing is that actually pain is not that simple. We actually don't have any pain receptors in our body. What we have is something called a nociceptor. And what nociceptors do is they detect threat. Now, threat can come from many different places. Threat can be measured. Um, maybe you've watched the news. <laughs> We've just found out COVID's hit. Yeah. Maybe you've had a fight with your partner. Maybe you're doing plank pose for the first time in a long time maybe doing plank pose too aggressively. Um, 
maybe you have a low job satisfaction. So all these different things can can be threatening, including poor diet and sleep. You know, your your imagination can go to town on all the different things that could have an impact on your threat. But what we have, all of us, is different threat thresholds, i.e. imagine a bucket. And we might reach the top of our bucket, potentially me being hypermobile, my threat threshold is maybe a bit lower than yours. You know, maybe it takes you a lot more to reach your threshold. And when you reach your threshold, the brain will often use a stimulus such as pain to change your behavior. Okay, you've had a fight with your partner, you're unhappy in your job, and you want to do a plank pose that we haven't done in ages. Do you know what? I'm going to give you pain. There's actually nothing wrong with your wrists. Your wrists are perfect. There's nothing wrong with your shoulders as you do chaturanga or your back as you go into a backbend, but your brain perceives it as a threat, maybe because it hasn't done it for a long time, maybe because all the other things in your life are just overflowing. And so this is what gets really fun and interesting when you look at neuroscience, because as a therapist, there's not a lot I can do to help you in the realms of your relationship. You know, that's not my place. And maybe it's not practical for me to tell you to leave your job but I can reduce your brain's overall threat by making your eyes work better, by getting your vestibular system to function better, by improving the mapping of your wrists and your shoulders. Now, when you go into that plank position, we're not healing your wrists. Your wrists were perfect. They were always great. But the overall threat in your brain is now so low, you're not getting the threat response, aka pain. Hmm. Wow. That is something else. So then the, the approach you talk about, like, these three different approaches to handling pain. If it's not an actual, if there's, if the wrists are actually fine, it's been x-rayed or scanned and everything's sweet and good, but it's more neurological. Um, can you give us an example of maybe something you would do to help transform this view of pain into something that can, um, you know, free us into no pain? I think the important thing is to go back to what I just said, like pain is, Often when I describe pain in this way, people go, oh yeah, pain is, you know, created by the mind. And I want to be very clear that pain is not in your head and it's not something that your mind has just created. It's a very, very real output to change your behavior. So it could be that your wrists need attention. It could be that we need to get you breathing more properly. So there's it's really difficult for me to say I would do X, Y, and Z because really what I should be doing is looking at the individual's unique history. And based on that history, I need to go, oh my goodness, they've got a massive scar on their right shoulder and they have a tattoo on their back. Now, both of those will register on the brain as like a fuzzy map. You haven't got great input from the skin and from the mechanoreceptors traveling to the brain, telling the brain exactly where it is in space and how it should be operating in a moment. So what we could do is go, okay, let's, um, let's skin stimulate that area. Let's, let's touch it or let's put vibration on it, both the scar on the shoulder and the back tattoo. And then like, that would be one part of someone's history. Maybe another part of someone's history is they were in a bad car accident and they had whiplash. And whiplash could create you know, issues around the brainstem. Let's do some drills to help upregulate the brainstem. So for me to say, oh, I would do this, this, and this would be unethical because it's important that people look at the individual's history. And based on that history, we then decide 
where our focus will go to help the persons uh, to help the person reduce their threat levels. Hmm. Right. So, like something traumatic happens, and so it, it locks these. It starts to map these pain areas. Not quite. It's more like let's let's imagine you go on holiday, and mm-hmm. you decide you're going to use your your iPhone because it's got really good maps, Google Maps on it to help you get around. You don't speak the language and it's in a country where you don't even recognize the characters. So to kind of find your way around with like, just like looking at like a Portuguese word is easier than looking at a Cambodian word, right? The characters, you don't recognize them. So it's harder for you to read where you're going. So you're using your iPhone but you drop your iPhone badly and the screen cracks into a million different pieces. And you're like, oh my goodness. And as you look at it, you cannot look at the map. The map is completely illegible. These past traumas will often register as a fuzzy map on the brain, both in terms of motor output and also sensory input. And that can make it really difficult for the brain because the brain's like, oh gosh, I want to make sure that you go into the splits, but it's a bit scary for me to be perfectly honest with you because I don't have a good map in my brain of sensation wise, what that's going to look like. And I don't know if I'm able to control the motor output in a way that's going to keep you safe. I know what I'll do. I'll give you really intense hip pain and make you really, really tight. So the brain is often choosing things like tightness, um, nausea, fatigue, uh, pain, dizziness as protective outputs. And another great example of that is you're in a car and you decide it's a good idea to, I don't know, read a comic book. Usually people will start feeling nauseous. That's again, the brain just going, you know what? I I haven't eaten anything dodgy. I've actually just been having salad last week and I'm used to eating salad. But you know what? I'm going to make this person feel a little bit unwell because I don't like reading a comic book in a car. It doesn't make me, it doesn't make sense to me. Like I can't get the right visual and vestibular stimulus. So I'm getting confused. So I need this person to stop. I'm going to give them nausea. (laughs) Do you see how it works? Yeah, I see exactly how it works. And um, yeah, thanks for explaining it so beautifully. Your analogies are incredible. What is, um, with someone dealing like this, do you have any like case studies, like a story that you can share of, someone having, you know, certain pain and how they mapped it out to be able to um, finally have comfort within their body. Yeah, one one girl comes to mind who, my heart just goes out to her. She was a professional violinist that would perform, really talented. And she had two really severe from the rear impact in, uh, in her car, she was, a, she was a driver, and another car slammed into the back of hers, and she had two severe whiplash injuries. And she was assessed in the medical world, but when I assessed her, they had really dropped the ball. And for the last seven years, she had lived in extreme pain, migraines, dizziness. Her hands had stopped working to the point where she could no longer perform as a violinist. Mm. She, had to, she was teaching, but she was not fulfilled through that, as you can imagine. And she had to move back in with her parents. So a real knock on her lifestyle. And when I assessed her, there were a few really obvious things going on with her. Her brainstem, her autonomic nervous system, the the part of you that's automatic without you having to think about it, like your heart and your digestion, 
the brainstem governs this and her autonomic system was really out of whack. And also, because she had been rehabbing herself probably for so long, her vestibular system had just stopped working. So all these dizzy, this dizziness had become a real problem. And then obviously, this had had an impact on how her brain was mapping things like how her hands would function. So we did some really simple stuff. I made her look at the 12 cranial nerves, which are in your brainstem. And each of them does something that kind of governs the movement of your eyes or your swallowing, or coughing or facial expression, maybe a humming. And we started working on these different basic drills a few times a day. We improved the mapping of her hands through sensation, but also through motor control, getting her hands to really um, move more. We improved her breathing. And we also started looking at her cerebellum and how her cerebellum deals with coordination. And within about seven weeks, she had taken up performing again and she were, decided I'm actually gonna, gonna go and leave home now. I've decided I'm strong enough to, to move out of my mom and dad's house. I was really, really happy for her. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, oh my gosh. It was amazing. And there was been a few other people like that that were so severe and it was almost like the medical world had given up on them. Like they were given these drugs to kind of manage their symptoms. But the mm. side effects on the drugs list often created these other problems that they were struggling to manage with as well. Mm. Um, and, and for her, they gave her a type of painkiller and the side effect was dizziness. Now, she already had dizziness as a symptom. So it was mind blowing to me that the medical world didn't go, oh my goodness, okay, the side effect's actually gonna make some of the stuff you're struggling with even worse. We need to get you off this one and on a different one. Mm, yeah. And then also, like, how do you feel about, because um, if they're giving like painkillers, and obviously it, it gives a window for people to just be in some sort of comfort, but also it takes away that, that mapping that you're talking about that obviously is trying to lead us down to a solution. So actually, I'm not anti-pain medication. I think they really does have its place. The positive mm -hmm. thing about pain medication is your brain has dedicated pain centers. And if you practice pain enough times, your brain gets used to producing pain, even if there's nothing wrong or your threat levels are low. So to teach the brain to be out of pain is actually a really powerful thing. And I'm so grateful that people created analgesic medication that can help remove the sensation of pain and give these powerful neurological areas a break, <laughs> turn them off for a bit. So I'm not anti-pain medication, but I do think that two things are missing in the medical world. One, we aren't looking closely enough at the side effects, as I mentioned. And two, we aren't fully grasping the effects of dosage. Because if you look at a packet, you know, you're someone who's taller than me, heavier than me, you're a different sex to me, and yet you would be given the exact same dosage as someone who's very small, female, and has a totally different uh, body biochemistry. When we look at um, how medical trials have been done, they're often done on men because women are labeled as too complicated because we have menstrual cycles, we give birth. And one of the things that blew me away is when they actually looked at medication, this is slightly off the topic now, but uh, on the topic of gender, when they actually started assessing medication um, for ovarian cancer and every single person <laughs> in the cohort was a man. 
So it's kind of scary. Yeah, definitely. I feel like, um, like I, I want to speak on that if you're all right. Like when you be, being a woman and being a yoga teacher, um, how do you, how do you approach the yoga and share the yoga with your students? Knowing the same thing, like a lot of yoga is presented from a man's point of view. And, you know, what about like the majority of women at this moment in the Western world are practicing yoga, but I feel like there's a big gap in information on how to approach the practice based on, like you were just talking about, like moon cycles and something that men aren't going through. How do you approach it? I mean, Mark, you're talking to someone who's been a rule breaker from day one, you know? Yeah, baby. <laughs> it's difficult for me to answer that. I think... I've always been someone who doesn't mind people going, oh yeah, but that's not real yoga. I just don't, I don't care. I don't care what people have to say about what I do. Um, I do think it's something that's changing. I think it's something that's not as it was. There's definitely more women doing yoga now than men. And I think that people are using yoga to actually get in tune with their bodies. So. I think that the, everything's heading in the right direction. Um, there are some ancient texts that do say things that I think are pretty unfavorable if you're a feminist. And I think everyone should be a feminist, including men. <laughs> um, because ultimately, it's just about realizing our equality and um, realizing that we all have a place within this beautiful spiritual journey. It doesn't, it's not only reserved for one gender. Um, but I do think things are changing and it's going in the right direction and yeah, it's encouraging. Mm, absolutely. And so when, when you, um, when you design your practices, would you maybe offer a different type of practice for someone at a different point in their moon cycle or do you approach it in a different way or is it just kind of the same class for everybody? Yeah, I, I, to be honest with you, I haven't, um, taken my studies to that level and I hope to in the future um, what I have been doing is integrating a lot of the neuroscience into my practices and empowering people with this very basic sense of test retest because through that you can kind of gain a quite a clear understanding as to what your body needs um, it's tricky a online I'm teaching mostly online and b um, it's tricky when you have like a room full of people, you can't be like, okay, now so-and-so do X, Y, Z, and so-and-so do X, Y, Z. But also I think that sometimes there is misinformation around practicing certain things that you can or can't do. Mm -hmm. I know that for some women, it works really well to rest and recuperate during uh, their period. But I know for myself, I have quite intense period pain. And actually when I do something very physical, like lifting heavy weights or going for a run, it often helps to alleviate my pain. So I think it's a highly, highly individualized topic. And I think that we need to empower people to make their own decisions, not based out of the fact that they feel physical shame for their bodies. And if they don't do their practice, that's a negative thing for them, but rather like tuning into their bodies and figuring out what they need in this moment. And then we can take it a step further. Then we can add in the test retest to see if our intuition is on point or if actually lying on the sofa and eating potato chips is maybe not the best thing for us. <laughs> because sometimes that's what you want to do, but you know it's not the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. I love the you know the idea of just test and retest and always just checking in with oneself to see you know what is, what is it that I need as an individual and uh, approaching the practice that way. Exactly. Love it. Yeah, new every day. I'd like to talk a little bit you know with the time that we have left. Um, 
I'd like to talk about your book. I oh, thank you. Um, you, have, you have a book out and um, you did it with um, uh, Adele Bridges. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the book is for hypermobile people. It's called Too Flexible to Feel Good. And it's a practical roadmap to managing hypermobility. Um, so what, 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 um, what was the catalyst for you to go out and this, this is your first book, is that correct? I did write another book to help yoga teachers on the journey, um, to getting teaching, but I'm actually taking it out of print because I feel like it needs a bit of an update. This is my first published book. Very proud of it. Spend a lot of sleepless nights writing it. And it's a combination of a bit of humor, a bit of biomechanics, neuroscience, and the understanding of what hypermobile people are going through and what could serve them best um, in their journey. Um, as a yoga teacher and a hypermobile person, um, I know that you will walk into a class, it's your first ever yoga class, you've never hit the mat, and yet people are able to tell you you have a beautiful practice. And it's inspiring. You're like, wow, I've never been that good at anything sports-wise. <laughs> I've, I've always really struggled to run fast enough or hit a ball hard enough. And now someone's telling me that, yeah, you're good. And it's, it's like, it's like honey for a bear. Like I just couldn't stop going back. And I know a lot of my Bendy uh, community felt the same way in the beginning, but I don't know if the practice was fully taught in a way that was um, supportive of the needs of this community. Um, maybe a little bit of our ego mixed in with the teacher's desire to see progress, that, that mixture can sometimes be a bit dangerous um, because there are lots of accounts of people through their yoga journey discovering that actually this is not serving my body. And sometimes they had to either alter the practice, which I think is the best way forward. Don't leave your yoga, just change it a little bit. But some people were advised to give up yoga altogether, which I think is a real shame. So we wanted to write the book to encourage yogis to keep doing their yoga, but to add in a few different changes to the way they approach their practice, but also to view their bodies a little more holistically. You know, I mentioned that threat bucket and that lots of different things can add to the mix. Well, it's the same thing, you know. Yes, we have lax joints that's caused by collagen defect, but we also have very unique structures in our brain. And it's important for us to look at those control centers and then in addition to that, maybe think a little bit more broadly about, you know, what could be adding to our anxiety. Is it our diet? Is it the fact that we're only doing yoga? Maybe we could mix things up and add in some resistance training, um, maybe more meditation to help us with uh, some of the psychological challenges that come along with hypermobility. But really just to kind of approach our bodies with these wide open lenses to to realize that there's so much more to the picture than just the bendy joints. Mm. What are some of the challenges uh, that you deal with in hypermobility? So there are three main ones. Um, of course, bendy joints sometimes means that there's a level of pain that the body's having to kind of live with. Um, fatigue is a massive one. You know, some people really, really suffer with low energy. Uh, the other one is gut issues. And the last one is anxiety. So those ones are like the, the big ones. There are lots of others, but those ones tend to flag up more frequently in the community. And the thing to note about hypermobility is it is a spectrum. And the annoying thing about it is it's not just a spectrum within each body, but 
unfortunately, day to day, the spectrum will vary. You know, sometimes you can feel really good doing certain things and other times it's just not working for you. You know, you're going to have to change the, the, the direction of the rudder. So in that way, it can feel very frustrating. But what we always try and do is we try to kind of spin the narrative. We actually, throughout the book, wanted to encourage hypermobile people to realize that being hypermobile is a superpower. So we actually have superheroes and supervillains in the book to make it like interesting to read because <laughs> anatomy books can be quite dry. And, um, you know, we named each of the stability muscles like a superhero name and we called brain the big daddy brain who like has to go in and really support people um, from the control centers level. Uh, but then we had all the supervillains, like we had sedentary seductress. You know, she's the one who's always wanting you to just sit on the sofa and watch Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the narrative, of course, is that, you know, you're fragile and you're weak. <clears throat> we wanted to flip the narrative and tell people that if you have hypermobility, it is a superpower. A, you have got the ability to physically do what other people don't. And if you can harness that, it can actually be really empowering. The second part of that is that everyone's bodies are struggling under this huge toxic load, intense screen time, intense work ethic, and highly overstimulated population. And a lot of people don't get any symptoms until they're really old and kind of breaking down. However, us as a hypermobile community, we're getting the symptoms now. So how Adele always describes it is that we are the canary in the coal mine and we're warning people now, you know, you need to meditate and you need to watch out what you're eating and you need to make sure that you're mindful with your practice, that you don't just stretch, you don't just lift weights, but there's this integration of multi-training systems that you're pulling into your routine. Um, yeah, and you're getting enough rest and you're getting off your screens. <laughs> just imagine... Mm with a canary in the coal mine. I love that. I love the way you put that book together and made it a little bit more fun and bringing in characters. And it's, it's so you, it's so, it's so you and Adele, actually, you guys are just a, a power couple. Um, I would love to hear about what's, what's your, um, I guess, program these days in terms of how you're moving, uh, what you're doing. Um, if you have meditation, what's your, what's your usual routine you know, throughout the week? Uh, it's very simple. Uh, I open my eyes and I will <laughs> put a little meditation on and I usually do it lying down. I just listen to something that can either be related to gratitude or breathing or just starting your day with mindfulness. Um, and then I'll get ready and I'll go for a walk. And it's during my walk that I think my meditation really begins because there are a few different visual drills that you can do whilst you're walking, which you have to be hyper-focused to do, but they're so, so good for the brain. And they also linked to reducing your sympathetic drive. So if you are someone who's like me that has a lot of energy and you're go, go, go all the time, you know, these visual drills, which I'll share with you in a second, are really good for calming the nervous system. And so the one that I want to share with you guys is one called peripheral awareness. So imagine you're about to have a big argument with someone really mean. Mark, tell me, does your focus become more narrow and zoomed in or does it become really broad and open? I'll be definitely narrow. Exactly. And when we're staring at screens all day long, again, our focus becomes very narrow. 
So what peripheral awareness walking does is it asks you to keep your eyes focused on the direction you're moving, but you're questioning yourself as you walk going, what is above me, what is below me, and what is to the sides of me? And what your objective is, is to try and broaden how much information your brain can take in, not in terms of words or labels, but more like the little edges of the tree leaves that are passing you or the, the, the clouds above you or the passing floor underneath you. And wow, <laughs> you'll be surprised how much focus peripheral awareness um, walking requires. So that's something I added to my routine. Then I crack on with my day. I do lots of work. Um, and then usually around lunchtime, I will do some more vision drills. I'll go for a walk. When I come back to my desk, I'll finish off my day. I'll usually try and do some vestibular drills when I'm done. And then I'll either go climbing. I love rock climbing, do a yoga practice, lift weights. Um, those are the three main physical uh, things that I do outside of walking. And then finally, I, whenever I'm at the beach, I'm a big fan of kite surfing. So that's, that's mm. my meditation on the water. Awesome. I love it. Um, I, I love to, to hear your routine as well about, because I know you were saying that you're teaching mostly online, so you're spending quite a bit of time online as well, and how you have this, this balance of using these exercises that you've been explaining to us throughout the podcast and seeing them in real time and how it works and how it's working for you, including the, the mixture of the modalities that you're using from weightlifting to kite surfing, your yoga, your, um, your walking meditation, using your periphery. Um, and how important it is to just take the phone and put it to the side and not be staring at it while we're walking and just take that time just to be yeah. where you're at and just taking your surroundings. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's difficult to break away. Um, but if you really want to have lots of energy and if you really want to feel super, super good, break away. <laughs> break away. And there's a few, actually, I'll just share a couple of extra little hacks with you all, with your listeners. Um, Please. Take your palms. Actually, let's do a quick test retest. I want you to do a side bend, maybe to the right or the left. Just choose one just because so, of time. And just see how far you can get. Maybe do a few reps just so you're warmed up. And notice where your body stops. And then when you're like, yeah, that's about as much side bend as my body's going to give. Perfect. Take your palms and you're going to close your eyelids and you're going to very, very gently rest your palms over your eyes. And then you're going to create complete darkness. So the hand, the palm is sealing off the orbit of the eye, not so that you're pushing on the eye, but you are creating complete darkness. And we're just going to hold this for 30 seconds. So we're reducing the visual input right now, which is very, very powerful for the brain. The brain's vision centers are, wow, there's so many. And they're obviously massively overstimulated in modern life. If it feels good, you can add in some slow breathing. And your eyes are actually trying to look for the darkness. Okay, I think roughly that's about 30 seconds. Take your hands away from your eyes now and now reassess your side bend. How is that for you, Mark? It doesn't work for everyone, by the way, but tell me about your body. It just feels a bit more spacious. And I think 
what's happened as well is just it's heightened my awareness. Yeah. And I feel like I definitely feel just more spacious. I, you know what? I, I'd love to hear more about that because I, I spent three nights in darkness. Um, just stayed in a dark room for three nights, three days, and I did a yoga practice in there. And I definitely noticed a difference in my practice by being in the pitch dark. So what's what's happening here that it's just giving me more access to to my body, to space? You're just reducing your brain's threat. It always comes back to threat um, levels. Yeah. So imagine stiffness and tightness and a lack of strength can often just be your brain's way of keeping you safe. Now, what we've done through this very basic 30-second drill is we've reduced the visual input and we've given your brain just a chance to chill out. It doesn't have to focus on anything. We've reduced your brain's threat and your brain's like, okay, I feel a bit safer now. I'll give you more range of motion. That's, that's epic because um, they, they say that when we're sleeping that you have way more flexibility if someone wants to you know, move your, your leg in a position that because you're completely out of it in darkness, everything's shut off, but you have a lot more access. I think it's a slightly different conversation because when we're sleeping also there, and I'm, I don't have enough knowledge to talk about this very eloquently, but as far as I'm aware, the additional layer to that conversation is of course, we have turned off your conscious brain. So mm -hmm. your motor cortex there is sleeping. So yes, the darkness will have an impact, but I don't want you to focus too hard on the fact that sleeping gives you more range of motion um, because if you're awake, that's not really going to translate for you so clearly. So whenever you, like, for example, that might not have worked for some people, but another thing that could work for you is I make you do a low hum for a really, really, really long time. And that low hum, which is one of our yogic breathing style um, modalities, that can work really well for some people. You know, so it's about finding the right drills. And the way we do that is we look at your history and based on the challenges your body has faced, we're up to upregulate those parts of the nervous system that have maybe not been given the support that they need to operate fully. And then hopefully as your brain's threat reduces, your brain can then make better decisions and it can give you a better output better strength, better mobility, more speed, more accuracy, clearer vision, better balance. This is, of course, the sharp contrast to the other things that I described, dizziness, fatigue, pain, nausea. Can you see how the two are both outputs? Both buckets mm -hmm. are outputs, but your brain will choose the one that's most appropriate depending on how safe it feels. Fascinating. Fascinating. Love your journey. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Um, I I wanted I wanted to dip in before we leave because um, I know you have a podcast as well called uh, Love at First Science. Is that correct? Yeah, I do. Yeah, and and what is this all about? Who who are you bringing on to your podcast at the moment, and um, and why? So my vision for Love at First Science was to realize that it's not just scientists who are scientists. <laughs> People that are really living with a deep passion. These are the people that I want to bring onto the podcast and I want to just uncover layers to their passion. So my vision for it is to interview lots of different types of people from lots of different backgrounds. But currently, um, because there's only so many hours in the day, uh, I haven't got loads and loads and loads of episodes yet. 
But the people that I have brought on are people that are highly skilled within the science realm. I think there's a couple that aren't. There's, I think, um, a yoga teacher and there's also a vocal coach. But I mean, fantastic. These people are so knowledgeable and they have so much to offer. And I, I kind of wanted people kind of like the, in the back, back, background of their mind to realize that whether you are someone who is highly educated or not, everyone actually has got so much to share. And it can be a very deep conversation within a very targeted um, arena, much like we've had today about the brain, as opposed to kind of just like waffly chats about how's your day going. Um, I really wanted it to be something that people can take away really practical tools. Like today we shared a few practical tools that hopefully your listeners will find can help them in either in their yoga practice or their day-to-day -day, uh, management of mental health or anxiety. That's basically what I wanted from the podcast. People go away and they're like, yeah, I've got like three things I'm going to do and I'm going to make me feel better. <laughs> I just want to thank you um, for taking the time to share well, one your journey and how it just all comes together so nicely, like this puzzle of things that you've taken along the way from your background in neuroscience, your physio, and as a yoga teacher and sharing these things in the realm of, of, uh, of yoga and just being a human being that's um, wants to live a, a comfortable and joyful and fun life. And these awesome little hacks that we really don't get to think about, or you, you don't really see in the yoga world per se. Um, and I really appreciate what you're doing out there for all of us and, and sharing it in such a really bubbly way. Like if you haven't um, been to Celeste's um, Instagram, um, that pops up for me. I'm sure you're on other social media platforms, but it's a real treat and really fun to watch. You're definitely going to laugh a little bit and learn a lot. So please check that out. Um, Celeste, what, what is your um, Instagram? At Celeste Pereira? Physio. Yeah. So guys, I'm Celeste with no E on the end. My mom has an issue with silent vowels. So apologies. I should have an E on the end. And I thought about for years, I thought, you know what? I'm going to change my name. But then Googling me is a little more tricky. Without the E, it's a bit easier. So just to put Celeste with an E on the end, either physio or yoga, and you'll find me. And um, if Instagram is not your thing, guys, honestly, on my website, there is a contact form. Please reach out to me. I love hearing from you guys. Um, if YouTube is your thing, I've got a couple of videos on there. Again, there's never enough hours in a day. I've always got these grand ideas I'm going to post every week, and then that always falls apart. But the intention is to keep producing more content for you guys and different hacks and things that can just make you feel really good. But if anyone wants to practice with me, I actually have got an app and we do a lot of different brain stuff to help you get into different poses. So this Monday we did Galavasana, which is a really tricky pose for a lot of us. And guys, it's transformational. Like once you start realizing the power of the brain, you can use different little things that the brain has at, has at its disposal you're going to be doing things with your body you never dreamed possible and you're going to walk away from them feeling amazing. Awesome, Celeste. You're awesome. Um, again, thank you. Thank you for connecting from London. Really appreciate it. And um, yeah, I hope all the listeners got a lot from that. I know I did. And um, yeah, catch up with Celeste on all those platforms. Thank you. Job to her. I know she has some workshops coming up and things like that. So please check in with that.
Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you for having me and thank you to Glow, to your whole team that's made this happen. Thank you to all of you and a very, very special thank you to all the listeners for being here till the end. Um, you guys mean a lot to me and it'll be a pleasure to connect with you guys in some way in the future. Absolutely. Much love. Thank you so much. Much love. Thank you. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at Glow. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider at Red Cub Agency for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find the Glow Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills.